you have to recognize that other people are just such freaking skeptics. And so we need to be resilient enough to realize that other people thinking that they are being helpful to us somehow, like somehow we've never considered risks or whatever. They're like, well, do you really think that's a good idea? I mean, mm, I don't know. Do you really think you could do that? And they're going to try to be devil's advocate up the wazoo for you. And it's very difficult because we often assume that our friends, our family are going to be the best supporters. And often they are the worst critics because in their mind, they think they're somehow helping us with some blind spot that we never have considered. And that can be really demoralizing at first. So it's very important to prepare yourself for that so that we're not blindsided by that reaction. That's number one. And then number two, to a similar end, the rest of the world, the people sort of outside of your immediate sphere of family and friends, interestingly, they're actually somehow the most supportive because they don't have a stake in whether or not you succeed. They're like, okay, sure, whatever, go for it. But the problem there is that they just literally might not remember that you are changing or attempting to change your job because they are not paying that much attention to you. And so it becomes really important for you to remember that you can't just tell someone once, you have to tell them multiple times and show them in different ways, like starting to share content on social media, for instance, about your new field or what you're doing or how you're training or whatever to reinforce it. Because if you tell them once, it's just gonna slip out of their mind and they'll be like, oh, but wait, weren't you in marketing? And it was like, ah, oh, no, that's what I was doing like three years ago. And so we've gotta really have almost a kind of PR campaign just to get people to remember that we're doing something different. Welcome back to The Fix, where every week we interview thought leaders, world leaders, academics, business leaders, activists, and ordinary people who are taking action to build workplaces that work for everyone. Before we start, just a quick request. If you like our podcast, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review. You can also sign up to our newsletter and get in touch at www.thefixpodcast.org. Today is a really special episode because I'm going to do a deep dive on a topic that touches nearly every single one of us, which is how to make a career change. Whether that's starting a new job or building your own business, at some point, most of us will have to make a career transition. The problem is it can often feel overwhelming when we do. However, you might be surprised to learn just how many of us experience career changes on a fairly regular basis. According to the latest findings from a Pew Research Center report, approximately 53% of employed adults in the United States quit their jobs in 2021 and changed their career occupational field of work at some point in the last year. Additionally, research by the online career platform Zipier finds that in the United States, 37% of the labor force changed or lost their job in 2020. The average American worker has about 12 jobs throughout their lifetime and an average tenure of about four years in each job. Amazingly, around 85% of American workers are actively searching for a new full-time job right now. That is an astounding statistic. Clearly, learning how to manage your career is a critical skill for just about all of us. 
On today's podcast, Dory Clark, author, consultant, and keynote speaker, will be joining us to discuss how you can make a career change and find meaning at work. Here, Dory shares why we must learn how to manage our careers. I often get brought in to speak for companies and for organizations, specifically around the fact that a lot of the traditional assumptions about your career path have been upended in the past 10 to 20 years. In general, there was sort of a shared cultural understanding up until the 1990s that your career would, unless you did something specific to screw it up, it would generally be an escalator and that things would be predictable enough. And as long as you kind of put in the requisite amount of work, you would just be moved up the escalator, you know, from manager to director and VP and SVP. And, you know, it's just, okay, These things happen typically at certain increments. Maybe it's a two-year increment, maybe it's a three-year increment, but you you sort of knew when it was all coming. And at a certain point, those assumptions broke down and the escalator stopped working. And it became a situation where on one hand, there was more opportunity because it didn't have to be the same way as it was before. Things could move faster or things could just look different. You kind of pogo around, you could move to different localities, you could move to different functional areas. It was much more customizable than it had been. But also it meant that if you did not take action, if you did not have agency in the process, then kind of nothing would happen and you would just stagnate. And this basically started happening, but nobody announced it. And so therefore, there's some people who kind of caught on real fast. And then there were other people who were like, hey, wait, I've been in this position for five years and I haven't gotten a promotion. And you can understand they're pretty bitter because they're like, um, excuse me, wasn't this a thing? Like, why did no one tell me? And so basically I get brought in to tell people it's challenging because if you're an older worker, it actually in some ways is not fair because midway through the bargain changed. And I get that. That's really kind of not cool in a lot of ways. But also, we as humans do a lot better dealing with reality rather than shaking our fist at the sky and being like, this isn't fair. Why did this happen? Well, I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's there's a million geopolitical, sociopolitical reasons why things happen. But what I can tell you is that this is how it is. And so if we want to be successful today, What needs to happen is that everybody needs to get a lot more proactive about it. And this is discomforting in some ways, but again, you know, it's like a lot of life. No one cares about you as much as you care about you. And you might have a nice, thoughtful manager, and I hope you do, but a lot of people don't. And it's not because their manager is awful or evil, although some are. It is mostly because they are overstretched and they just do not have the bandwidth. They just don't have the time or the bandwidth to go there for you. So you need to make sure they're going there for you and that you're going there for you. And that is what is going to enable you to be able to scope out where you want to go. On the plus side, because a lot of people are not doing this, if you actually are one of the people that's raising your hand and saying, hey, I want to do this, usually people are like, oh, okay, cool, go do that. (laughs) You know, it's actually easier than you might think, but it takes that level of initiative and there really is that change. The other thing that I'm a really big fan of, and I talk about this in the long game, is thinking about your own 20% time. And this is, of course, a concept that Google made popular where, especially in the early days of the organization, they would encourage their workers 
to spend up to 20% of their time on, I'll call them experimental or discretionary activities that did not relate directly to their day-to-day job responsibilities. And this is what enabled people to come up with things like Google News and to come up with things like Gmail, which have become a very big part of the organization. And if we make sure that we're doing that for ourselves, you know, creating our own 20% time, and admittedly, you know, a portion of this might be able to be done on the job as you can negotiate with your boss. Some of it may need to be done in your own discretionary time, but it's thinking through what can I learn about that's interesting to me? What can I learn about that would teach me something new, introduce me to new people, give me more skills? Since 2016, I have been spending my discretionary time, my 20% time learning to write musical theater. And I started out literally not knowing how to do it at all. And now I'm pretty decent at it. So over time, your investment compounds. In 2020, when the pandemic began, the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that most employees stayed in their jobs due to quarantine lockdowns and the uncertainty of impending layoffs. But in 2021, as the economic recovery started, businesses began reopening and increasing their capacity, and new skilled and knowledge jobs appeared at an unprecedented rate. According to the Work Trend Index in 2021, 46% of the career transitioning population decided to make changes to jobs outside of their industrial field. In fact, 4.5 million people per month in the United States voluntarily resigned from their jobs to find a different role or changing their career path entirely. Consequently, in 2021, employers began posting nearly 10.6 million jobs in an average month creating a worldwide shortage for talent. To make a career transition work, every candidate needs to learn one essential skill, how to rebrand themselves. Hiodori shares more on this. You have to recognize that other people are just such freaking skeptics. And so we need to be resilient enough to realize that other people thinking that they are being helpful to us somehow, like somehow we've never considered risks or whatever. They're like, well, do you really think that's a good idea? I mean, mm, I don't know. Do you really think you could do that? And they're going to try to be devil's advocate up the wazoo for you. And it's very difficult because we often assume that our friends, our family are going to be the best supporters And often they are the worst critics because in their mind, they think they're somehow helping us with some blind spot that we never have considered. And that can be really demoralizing at first. So it's very important to prepare yourself for that so that we're not blindsided by that reaction. That's number one. And then number two, to a similar end, the rest of the world, the people sort of outside of your immediate sphere of family and friends, interestingly, they're actually somehow the most supportive because they don't have a stake in whether or not you succeed. They're like, okay, sure, whatever, go for it. But the problem there is that they just literally might not remember that you are changing or attempting to change your job because they are not paying that much attention to you. And so it becomes really important for you to remember that you can't just tell someone once, you have to tell them multiple times and show them in different ways, like starting to share content on social media, for instance, about your new field or what you're doing or how you're training or whatever to reinforce it. Because if you tell them once, 
it's just going to slip out of their mind and then be like, oh, but wait, weren't you in marketing? And it was like, oh, no, that's what I was doing like three years ago. And so we've got to really have almost a kind of PR campaign just to get people to remember that we're doing something different. If you ask employees what they want out of their careers, most will mention pay and promotions. But what often comes next on the list is meaning. People want to undertake work that gives them a sense of purpose and fulfillment. A 2020 McKinsey and Company survey showed that 82% of employees believe it's important their company has a purpose, ideally one that contributes to society and creates meaningful work. When a company has purpose, its people do too. Additional McKinsey research finds that about 70% of employees say their personal sense of purpose is defined by their work. And when that work feels meaningful, they perform better and are much more committed to their job. Here, Dory shares how we can find meaning in our work. As humans, we like to feel like we're heading somewhere, that we're doing something, that we're making progress. And so much of COVID for so many people was just literally like one day after another that all felt the same. I mean, I know so many people that'll start to tell a story and they'll be like, well, you know, blah, 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 back in the summer of 2020. And they'll be like, wait, was it 20 or was it 21? I don't remember anymore. And it's like, oh, it's because it was the same thing. It was like nothing had really changed. And so they all blur together. And that is not incredibly conducive to a feeling of existential purpose. So one piece of research that I turn to fairly frequently is a book that was done by Teresa Amabile, who's a Harvard Business School professor. And she wrote a book called The Progress Principle, which there's a a big study that she and her husband, Stephen Kramer, did. And they discovered that on a day-to-day basis, the thing that made the most difference in terms of employee satisfaction was the feeling that even in a small way, that people were making progress on a goal that was meaningful to them. That was the key thing, just that feeling of forward momentum. And so I think in the past, sometimes that was externally provided. And now I think we have to get pretty savvy about how to create that for ourselves because it just might not be there on its own. And so thinking through like, all right, what is a goal that's worthy of attaining? And how do I ensure even if I'm really busy, even if I have to do a lot of stupid things that don't feel very relevant, that every day I'm doing at least something. I mean, maybe it's like you want to write a novel and so you write 200 pages of the novel or something, but it's being able to mark that off is really important to a lot of our well-being. I think too, in my book, The Long Game, of course, I am talking a lot about long-term purpose and goals. You know, What are we striving for? And An important thing to recognize is that goals can change too. And in fact, they probably should as you are refining your vision. As you get closer to achieving a goal, you have more information about what that thing is actually like. And it can help you determine better whether you would really enjoy it or whether it really is the right goal for you. Or maybe external circumstances have changed and maybe you used to have this goal of wanting to work abroad and that was the big vision. And all of a sudden, you know, maybe you're now have a child or something like that. And it's like, oh, that would actually be really complicated. That's not what I want. Well, it's okay to change to a newer and better goal. And we don't have to feel like we're giving up on something as long as we are being thoughtful and rational in terms of weighing the pros and cons and making that choice. We assume that everyone will sort of substitute their own analogous goal. But, you know, I have goals that range 
from the profound to the, you could say relatively prosaic, I'll tell you one goal, which is that by the end of the year, I want to really finally have mastered latte art. I have been working on latte art since November of 2020. I bought this latte machine. Oh my God, it's so hard. But this year I took a latte art class. I paid for a class. I bought these special things where it's like you practice at home with like food coloring because it's like very expensive to screw up a bunch of coffee with actual coffee beans. And as with any goal, there's ups and downs. My little steaming wand right now on my machine seems to be broken. So I'm having my assistant call the warranty people. I mean, you know, it's crazy. But this is a goal that is meaningful to me. It's probably not like existentially meaningful in the scope of human history, but I like it. So that's good. And then contrasted, I have a 20 to 30 year goal of becoming a United States ambassador. That's like more geopolitically significant than being a master of latte art. But, you know, they're both goals. They just have different horizons. While most of us can identify a meaningful goal we want to pursue, there isn't an equal opportunity to realize these ambitions. Men and women do not have the same access to pursue their passions, hobbies and interests outside of work. For example, in the United Kingdom, the Office for National Statistics finds that men spend an average of 4 hours and 39 minutes every week on hobbies, computing and games. In comparison, women spend just 2 hours and 38 minutes on the same activities. Men were found to spend more of their hours on leisure time than women in almost every category, including watching TV, hobbies, and eating out. When not in leisure, women are much more likely to be performing unpaid work, and this may include dependent care and housework. If we're thinking about what makes a life meaningful, the only real arbiter, because we don't know what the universe wants from us, it would be nice if we did. People have theories, but nobody really knows what the universe wants from us. And so ultimately, the only real arbiter that we can fall back on is what is meaningful to you? What do you consider to be your highest and best use? And I would say that if we can achieve that or come close to achieving that, we have succeeded. If we feel frustrated and upset because we feel like we are not having our highest and best use, then that's where we're in trouble and we need to try to recalibrate. And so if there is someone, male or female, who is engaged in raising their kids and they want to take a cake decorating class, which is actually what my mother did when I was 10. She took classes at the community college and you decorate all these cakes. I mean, you can't eat all these cakes. So she kept sending them into my class, you know, to eat the cakes. So that's great. Life is long. You're not going to be raising kids forever. And so if that's the thing that feels fun and meaningful and doable to you while you are engaged in that project, I think that's terrific. It's also true that if you only throughout the course of your life, go from something you know that's a hobby to something else that's a hobby and you never really have something that could be considered a vocation where you are making a lasting impact it is probably not the recipe for success in terms of fulfillment most people would like to be able to point to something that they have changed or done or accomplished or a way that they have honed themselves systematically over time but I want to be clear, you could become a professional cake decorator. You could win the Great British Bake Off, 
What I'm talking about is the spirit in which you are attempting something. If everything in your life is a hobby, but nothing is a vocation, then you're probably just not going deep enough to make a mark that is satisfactory. But I think that your choice of where you go deep can be very diverse. And something that might seem like a trifle to someone else, trifle as in insignificance, as opposed to the actual form of bakery, <laughs> that you know, something could be a trifle to someone else, but could be extremely meaningful to another person. I mean, I take ping pong lessons. And for me, ping pong is a hobby, but I know people, I have hung out with people who literally are world champions in ping pong. For them, it is not a hobby and it is incredibly impressive what they have done with it. Starting a new job is widely considered to be one of the top 10 life-changing stressful events like getting married, divorced, or having a baby. Joining a new company has a way of significantly altering your day-to-day life, which is why knowing how to avoid burnout is critical. Here, Dory shares how you can manage the stress associated with making a career change. I think when it comes to avoiding burnout or recovering from burnout, the crucial thing is understanding the cyclicality of how we ought to be working as humans. We know intellectually that we are not machines, and yet we try to treat ourselves that way, meaning, oh, I can just go at the same pace and deliver the same results all the time. And if you are, in fact, a machine, that generally can happen, assuming that there's a basic level of maintenance. But if you are a human, that really cannot happen because we have cycles, we have rhythms, we have circadian rhythms, we have seasonal rhythms, and we need to understand that and respect it. It may be frustrating. We may not like it. We may wish we could stay up all night, but it just doesn't work that way. And if we are fighting reality and if we are pushing against it, it will go badly for us. You may manage to eke out a little bit more in the moment, but it's going to come back to bite you. I think that the crucial thing is understanding that, yes, there are times when you absolutely do have to go hard. You have to probably push yourself harder than you want to do it. And that is not a terrible thing, but it does become a terrible thing if you do it so consistently over time that there is no rest or restoration built in. If you're going to push yourself extra hard, you need to compensate for it at some point and be able to just relax yourself. At a very basic level, if you have too much cortisol, too much adrenaline circulating in your system for too long, there's going to be a cascade of negative physical consequences. And so we have to get smart about preventing that upstream. How do you know when it's time to change your job? Companies often use engagement surveys to find out how engaged employees are in their work. For example, one of the most well-known engagement surveys is the Gallup 12. It's also my personal favourite because it just asks 12 questions that give an indication of how engaged you are in what you're doing. But I think these questions are actually much more important for employees to ask themselves on a fairly regular basis to decide if it's actually time to leave. You can take a few minutes now to reflect on these questions. I know what is expected of me at work. I have the materials and equipment I need to do my work. At work, I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day. 
In the last seven days, I've received recognition or praise for doing good work. My supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. There's someone at work who encourages my development. At work, my opinion seems to count. The mission or purpose of my company makes me feel like my job is important. My associates or fellow employees are committed to doing quality work. I have a best friend at work. In the last six months, someone at work has talked to me about my progress. This last year, I've had opportunities at work to learn and grow. If you answered no to at least half of these questions, you may not feel as engaged and fulfilled at work as you could be. The questions you answered no to may help provide you with an indication of what it is that's missing from your current employer and what you might need in your next role. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. A quick one before I go, if you love our podcast and you want more, then hit subscribe now and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Your support means so much to me. Thank you for tuning into our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or maybe being a guest on the show, then reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.